Well, good morning. I love you too. <laughs> well, it's good to be in, in fellowship together by the grace of the, the Lord who saved us and brought us into this family to have this fellowship with one another and around His Word. And it was a joy to hear the music practice, you know, especially as I think about you know, this lesson and what we're going to talk about leadership, holy leadership, and God's sanctuaries, which we know how this ties into us being, you know, the temples of the Lord, and we bring our holy gifts and fellowship, you know, people that we want to offer our best, and that happens in song or in, you know, coming to study and to share also in the, the holy hope that we have with one another. And Maybe as we've been working through Leviticus, it's made you think back to First Peter a lot. It has for myself, because one of the, the things that I, I concluded was a main theme throughout First Peter as I taught through it was the, the main themes of hope and holiness. You know, they're always tied together, and knowing that, you know, Peter was very much drawing on the book of Leviticus, I thought, that's where he got this stuff. Today we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapters 21 and 22, which is very much focused on the priesthood. Specifically, uh, more generally, it extends beyond the priesthood to the people that they would be instructing. And that's how I came up with the title, Be Holy Because Yahweh Makes You Holy. This is something that was to be true for priest and people. And you'll hear those words echoed throughout these two chapters, Yahweh makes you holy. And we'll talk more about that phrase as we continue into this. But as we begin this morning, is there uh, anybody who would like to open us in prayer? Are you going to do it, Rick? You had such a, a confident lock-in on me. You're unashamed. All right. priesthood is specifically addressed in these chapters 21 to 22, and God instructs them that they're to be holy. You know, they were to distinguish between the holy and the profane, and here he's continuing to give them instruction in that, and the reason that they were to, to be holy is so that they could instruct others in holiness by the examples of their life as well as their teaching. More generally, we learn throughout Scripture that spiritual leaders are to be examples of holiness to the Lord, to the whole congregation, and that then the congregation is to model that holy as holy witnesses throughout the world, which if that was just left to ourselves to become holy, we might have much reason to despair, but... The hope that we have is in that phrase that gets repeated throughout these chapters, Yahweh makes you holy. Uh, he makes you what he commands you to be, which is where we have a promise and our hope. And as we orient ourselves to these two chapters, it's 
always important to understand the difference between the, the First Testament and the Newer Testament. What you see in the First Testament with the priesthood is that there are physical requirements because there is a physical tabernacle teaching model in which they're to picture certain things in a, a certain way and not mess up the teaching model. When you come to the New Testament, the physical requirements of the priest and the sacrifices, they go away with that tabernacle as it goes away. But that doesn't mean that uh, spiritual leaders can live by lower standards. Uh, if anything, uh, the spiritual standards for spiritual leaders goes up or just straight across. Uh, you see this, these sort of ideas talked about in Hebrews chapter 7. That's a key chapter on understanding this section of Scripture. In Hebrews 7, 12, it says, For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes, a pla there takes place a change of law also. So it's talking about you know, Christ priesthood, which is according to, to Melchizedek rather than the hereditary Levitical priesthood. And it says when there's a change of priesthood, there's also a change in the law. So you're not under this law that had these physical requirements with a physical temple. This is further commented on Hebrews 7, 15 to 16. It says, and this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not according to a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So you see there's a change of law, and that deals with these, you're going to read these physical requirements here where the priest was to be without defect and the continuing uh, hereditary line. And all of this was to be uh, something that was taught within that particular teaching model. It's also important to keep in mind that you know, these were teachings that were looking forward to Jesus as being the high priest of a different priesthood. And you could also argue the concept of the church being that royal priesthood under Jesus as high priest. So these teachings are, they mature into those realities. You know, they're pointing forward to Jesus as high priest and the church as a royal priesthood that's made up of Hebrews and the other nations. It's something that extends from the Hebrew people to also Gentiles being included in that priesthood, which is what I think we see in 1 Peter 2, which is another key chapter here, so one of the key chapters to, to focus on in your Bible reading later, if you were to meditate in these things, Hebrews 7 and 1 Peter 2, and it's in 1 Peter 2, speaking of the church, he says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Later in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All these things together inform us about congregational leadership. They teach us about the the how the First Testament connects to the Newer Testament. They teach us about Jesus as high priest and the church as a royal priesthood. So with those ideas, we're a little bit more oriented to understanding how we're to glean as New Covenant believers from this instruction in the Old Instruction Covenant. So beginning there in chapter 21... And verses 1 through 13 is the section we're going to look at, which I've labeled this little subsection, Holy Leadership Servants. You see a focus on them here. 
The text begins this way. It says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the priest, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his blood relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and his father and his son and his daughter and his brother, also for his virgin sister who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may defile himself." He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. And they bring near the offerings to Yahweh by by fire, the food of their God, so they shall be holy. What you see right there in that beginning section is that the, these priests were to be holy in funerals. You know, they were to be, they couldn't go to every single funeral given the dedication that they would have toward the ministry which the Lord had given them. So he restricts their funeral attendance to blood relatives only. Otherwise, the only thing that they would ever do is go to funerals. This was to help them in their devotion to the Lord, and this is not unlike what, you know, Jesus, you could say unlike what priest Jesus said to the priesthood of his disciples when he says, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Saying, you, you can't be uh, distracted with you know, attending every funeral that happens, but you need to be focused on the proclamation of the kingdom of God. You need to have a life that's undistracted by other things. You need to be focused on uh, the best things and the priorities that God gives. Also in this concept of funerals, you see that they weren't to grieve as others did by balding their heads or cutting themselves as people would commonly do at funerals in their culture and in the land of Canaan to which they were going. So he says, you can't grieve like others do, but you are to grieve in a way that shows the hope of being in covenant relationship with God the hope of his covenant promises. So how do, how do you think that connects into how we would perceive our own funeral attendance today and how we grieve the, the loss of loved ones? We grieve not as the rest who have no what. Yeah, we don't grieve without hope. So you don't have to cut your hair off or shave your beard corners or uh, cut yourself, but we grieve with hope because we know that those who die in the Lord, they don't die in vain. We know the truth that to, to die is gain. We know that Jesus died and rose again, and so God will even bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You see, the, the priesthood was designed to grieve and hope, to give others that hope, to communicate that holy hope and encouragement to others. Picking up in verse 7, they are to be holy not only in funerals but in marriage. In verse 7 it says of the priest, they shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. Therefore, you shall set him apart as holy, for he brings near the food of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, Yahweh, who makes you holy, am holy. And if you look down to verse 13, picking up there, it says, He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or one who is profaned by harlotry. These he may not take, but rather he shall... Take a virgin of his own people as a wife, so that he will not profane his seed among his people. For I am Yahweh who makes him holy. The marriage, the marriages of the priest were to reflect the purity 
of the covenant. Thus, they could only, and you think about this in a teaching model, you know, they were to take a wife in her virginity. They weren't to take a, a widow or a divorced woman or one who was profaned by harlotry. These they were not to take. It's like, well, what was the reason? I was like, well, this priesthood had a physical requirement, as we talked about, which you see in verse 15. It says, so that he will not profane his seed among the people. There was a, the office of the high priest was something that was hereditary, and it was a teaching model that was to display an undefiled priestly family. That was what was to be pictured in this priestly model. Now I know in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, there, there is no hereditary priesthood like this, so we don't have rules that are exactly like this, saying, you know, no Christians could ever marry a divorced person. But instead, we have more general rules, like in 2 Corinthians 6, such as do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, because, you know, our marriages are to be pictures of God's covenant faithfulness, and he doesn't, you know, marry him himself to demons or to Satan, which is why he says also that we're not to, in any sort of, whether it be marriage or any sort of ministry thing, we don't yoke ourselves with unbelievers. But also, the scripture recognizes that sometimes somebody marries somebody else, and while they're a believer, the other person they're married to turns out to be an unbeliever. And so there's instruction to those who are already married, but to believers that are already married to unbelievers. You see this in 1 Corinthians 7 or 1 Peter 3. It also speaks of church leadership in 1 Timothy 3 that, you know, if they are married, they're going to have a, a marriage that's above reproach in the eyes of all who see how they live within that marriage that they might be in. So why is it that spiritual leaders are not to defile themselves? Well, it's because they're to be holy. That's what God wants to be seen in his congregation. Well, why does God want them to be holy? So that they do not profane. You see that? There's that contrast with holy and profane. So they don't profane the name of their God Ultimately, this is about God's name. He wants to, to teach the world things about himself through congregational leadership, the congregation, funerals, and marriages. And how is it that they become holy? Is it they just have to give it the old college try and grin and bear it? Well, the way that it happens is Yahweh makes you holy. So the teaching model of the priesthood it instructs us about holiness, which you know you might remember from last week, this idea of how God, God's the source of our holiness because he's the only one who is holy. So the only way that you can become holy is if he does that to you somehow. But we also know that he's not only the source of our holiness, but he's also our need of holiness. He's the only one who can meet that need. And so he's also, he's the source of our holiness. He meets the need for our holiness. He's the reason for our holiness. The reason we per pursue it is so we can give a, a grateful witness of who he is to the world and he's our hope of holiness because he's going to do it. If he says that he's going to make you holy, he's going to do it. And all of this affects, you know, our fellowship with God, which you see this is tied into food fellowship offerings. It's tied into the witness of what God is like because, you know, the nations would see Israel's worship and it would be instructive not only to Israel but to everybody who would you know, watch how they were worshiping and then they would ask Israel for a reason for the hope that was in them. Because all of this you know, 
Well, why do you celebrate funerals this way? Because of our, our hope in our holy God. Why do, you have, why do you Levitical people get married like this? Because of the hope that we have in the, the covenant of our God. You're probably connecting in your mind how this is teaching this concept of working out your holiness to God with fear and trembling, for it is Yahweh who is at work to make you holy, both for fellowship and not to profane his holy name. Does that sound like a New Testament Bible passage that you're familiar with in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16? It says, So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. You can hear that Paul is preaching his Bible. He's preaching the purpose of the priesthood even there in Philippians. It's like, well, why do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Why do we work out pursuing holiness? Because God is at work in us. The reason that we work is because God is at work. Now, maybe that uh, causes some philosophical tension in your mind. Live with it. <laughs> It'll make sense in glory. But right now, it's not. we know that God, the reason that we're working is because God is at work in us. He's going to make us holiness, or he's going to make us holy. <laughs> so, so we pursue holiness. God's the source of our holiness, but it's not something that just happens while you uh, sit in the lazy boy, but it's something that has happened by disciplining yourself for godliness, which is what Paul said to Timothy. It's like, well, what's the, the secret of Holiness, is it like you just say some special prayer or do a few special things and then you just get zapped with holiness? No, it's discipline. It's growing in the knowledge of the Lord and disciplining yourself to walk in his instruction. And God is our certain hope that he will meet our need through the means that he has given us. Uh, he will accomplish in us what he has called us to. So Christ ends up being our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. What I mean by that, to put it another way, is you know, Jesus is the way that we're made right with God. He's also the way that we walk right with God until the day when we're just right with God and everything's right with God. It's not like, you know, in Galatians, there were some people who got confused and they thought, well, okay, fine. The way that you're made right with God is Jesus, but the way that you become a better Christian is you add in the law of Moses to your life. That's how you become a next level super follower of Jesus. He says, nope, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus is your justification. He's also your sanctification. You don't need to add anything to him. It's, he makes you right with him. He's the source for walking right with him. And he'll complete the work that he started in you. So he's also the end goal, which is the purpose of the law. You know, Paul comments on this in Romans 9 through 11, how you know part of what, the, some of the Jewish people missed was they thought you know, that the law itself would help them get to the goal of righteousness. And he says, no, the, the goal was for the law to lead you to Christ being your righteousness. Now, continuing on here in Leviticus 21, I guess if I had those cool little magnets, I could like move it. I could pull them out and move it to the point that I'm on. 
because sometimes I know you, you zone out and are like, where are we at right now? This is where we're at. It happens to you too. I know. Point number two, holy for the sanctuaries. Here you, let's look at, uh, yeah, we, can read, we can read this whole section here, beginning in verse 16, 21, 16. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron saying, no man of your seed throughout their generations who has a defect shall come near to offer the food of his God. For no one has, who has a defect shall come near a blind man or a lame man or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb or a man who has a broken foot or broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among the seed of Aaron, the priest who has a defect, shall approach to bring near the offerings to Yahweh by fire since he has a defect. He shall not approach to bring near the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. Only he shall not go into the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect, so that he will not profane my sanctuaries. For I am Yahweh who makes them holy. Why is it that the priest can't have any defects? Well, because God wants a... A picture of a priest who's without defect, who offers a food offering that's without defect into a sanctuary that remains to be without defect. Because he's saying, this is the picture of the high priest that I want to teach you about that comes in the future. It isn't because God doesn't like people with defects or that they can't come to him or that they can't serve him. It's just because within this teaching model, he wanted to teach them something about his priest and his sanctuaries concerning what kind of priest will be in God's future sanctuaries. That you might recall, if you were in Exodus class, I think that's when we talked about this. I don't know if we've talked about this in this class, but that's the concept that you know, when the, the tabernacle was built, it was adorned with the same clothing as the priest, which is making the point, and it's, ah, oh, they're wearing the same stuff. They're wearing the same purple and blue and gold and things, which people would see the priest are like walking tabernacles. And so if God lives in the tabernacle, his plan is to make all of his people priest who are tabernacles and he's going to live in them in which you see that not so much just hinted at but just blatantly stated while they're building the tabernacle and the construction crew of Holiav and Bezalel says the spirit of God came into them and it gave them knowledge and wisdom and understanding and a willing heart to contribute themselves to service toward that tabernacle. You might remember going back to the beginning of Scripture, Adam, who became defected and he profaned the dwelling place of God. But what we learn about in this teaching model is the hope that God is going to undo what happened then, but he's going to provide a future priest and priesthood who will be without defect and they won't be able to defect God's dwelling place. And you see how that works out in the picture of this uh, worship system of Israel and the teaching model. He, he's teaching them eschatology. He's teaching them last things. He's teaching them the, what, what Yahweh God is going to do is make a holy, a holy people that's going to come back into God's holy dwelling place. But then that makes some people wonder, well, how do we know the Adam thing isn't going to happen again? And we're going to get tempted again and just do this all over. He says, because they won't be able to defect. They won't be able to uh, profane the dwelling place. So there's an emphasis on hope being pictured here. Hope and holiness being tied together. 
what is our only hope that sin, sinful man can dwell with holy God as a holy people in a holy place without defilement or defect ever again? What's in these repeated words? I am Yahweh who makes them holy. Holy Yahweh is the only hope of a holy people in a holy land, and he will certainly do it. So the pursuit of holiness has a certain hope where both the people and the place are made holy because Yahweh will make them holy. He will do it. Now, looking at this next section, it begins in 21, 24 to 22, 15, it's focused on holy gifts that are given fellowship. i point out a couple of verses here. In verse 2, Moses is to Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they set apart to me as holy, so as not to profane my holy name. I am Yahweh. Picking up in verse 8, you shall not eat an animal which dies or is torn by beast, becoming unclean by it. I am Yahweh. They shall therefore keep my charge so that they will not bear sin because of it and die thereby, because they profane it. I am Yahweh who makes them holy. And then again in verse 15, to pick up there, it repeats these ideas saying, they shall not profane the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they raise up to Yahweh, and so cause them to bear punishment for guilt by eating their holy gifts, for I am Yahweh who makes them holy. You see here God giving his charge to his people. They're to keep things holy, unlike Adam who did not keep things holy. They were to keep God's command in order to enjoy fellowship with the holy gifts that everybody in the the congregation was to bring. Holy gifts from a people made holy, that come to the holy place and bring about fellowship with holy God. And these holy gifts were to be a a clean, ordered picture of how things are supposed to be and will be. You remember that distinction between clean and unclean as we talked about it? Clean and unclean isn't focused on the concepts of, you know, sinless or sinful, but they're focused on those things that are ordered in the kingdom of the tree of life. They're the things that are going to be like that kingdom. That's what is clean and orderly. But unclean is disorder. It's the kingdom of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Clean is that which is ordered in God's coming kingdom. Unclean is that which is disordered in the time in which we still live, of the time of there being good and evil, which God will in time reorder so that his name will no longer be profaned by unholy gifts. Yahweh will make them holy. Yahweh will make your gifts holy to him. And this isn't like you can come and bring him whatever gift you want. You can think back on Cain and Abel. Think, well, I can give them whatever gift I want, and God just has to accept it. And if he doesn't, I'm just going to be upset and descend into prideful self-pity. But instead, what you see that God, he graciously gives the gift which you're to give back to him. So he, he gives you the gift, and he tells you what is the right gift to, to give him, so that you can enjoy fellowship with him in his presence as he has intended it to be. I can see that repeated throughout this section is this idea of profaning the name of the Lord. How do we profane the name of the Lord or take his name in vain? How do we do that? You might remember uh, the Ten Commandments. Usually we think of them in two tables or 
you know, two sections. And usually we think of it, we, we divide it out in terms of, you know, loving God and loving neighbor, which are two ideas in it. But the commandments, actually the way that they divide out grammatically in the text is the first two, you know, you have no other gods and you don't make any molten images, ties into this idea of honoring father and mother. He's, he's showing, you know, when you honor God, it translates into how you live and honoring every authority that he's set up and delegated in the world. And commandment number three is what? Who remembers this one? This is the one about not taking the Lord's name in vain or profaning it. And it ties into these commandments right here, six, seven, eight, and nine. Which, what, what are these? Who remembers these? No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, right? So there's your, you know, you want a practical application of how you don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's not doing those things. So it's the, you know, the way that we profane the name of the Lord is disobeying him. And four, the Sabbath commandment ties into not coveting. You're not coveting because you're resting in his provision. You're resting in who he is and what he does, and you're not wanting it to be different than that. But we're focused here on this little thing right here and not profaning the Lord and making the point that the way that we profane his name is by disobedience. Bible commentator Alan Ross, and commenting on this, I think makes a good statement. He says, how did people profane the name of the Lord by disobedience? Likewise, today when people fail to prepare their hearts for worship by examining themselves, then they are treating the Lord as unimportant and his table as if it were an ordinary meal. People also profane the Lord when they give to God less than their best or when they use the gifts which God has given them for purely secular purposes. Which that, that made me think back on a, a story that I heard about our Alaskan friend, Roger Huntington, when somebody wanted to donate to the Cochrane Hills Bible Camp their old washer and dryer because they had bought a new one. And he met them at their boat on the river and he said, Give the Lord the new ones. <laughs> Awkward moment, to be sure. But you see that sort of concept. It's like, you know, give the Lord the best. You know, don't give him the stuff that you're taking to goodwill. Give him the best. And we want to think about that. You know, when we want to donate our stuff to the Lord, we don't want it to look like, you know, David's super awesome house and then go, Man, my house is way cooler than God's house. Uh, maybe I'll donate them some of the, the scrap lumber from my place. <laughs> well, I don't have a good transition to this next point, but uh, I wanted to make some comments here. Uh, something I brought up in the introduction, uh, you know, Jesus is high priest and then us is a, a priesthood of witnesses and just to remind you to, to read Hebrews 7. This is where it talks about Jesus' high, high priestly ministry, that it's according to the order of Melchizedek. It's not according to the law of physical requirement, but the power of an indestructible life. This is what it says about him in 717. It says, For it is witnessed about him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Later in that chapter, it says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Also in this concept of a, a priesthood of witnesses, which you've probably heard this concept of uh, the priesthood of believers. You know, we get that also from Hebrews. It's the, you know, it's the priesthood of people who have access to God. It's not just some guys who have access to God, but everybody does. And all of us become sanctuaries of sacrifices. Yet you see this in 1 Peter 2, 5. It says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see here that idea of there's a, you know, a priesthood where we have access to God, a priesthood where we make sacrifices to God and I also don't, I don't want you to miss, miss here spiritual sacrifices and think that it's only immaterial sort of things, or it's just like, you know, praying, which is immaterial, or singing, which is immaterial, and it means that you don't have to bring your cash, <laughs> or you don't have to, you know, don't give the Lord the new washer and dryer, you know, it, uh, spiritual is physical, there's not a division between those. Just think about uh, the fact that you're offering you know, spiritual sacrifices from a, a physical body. Yeah, this is uh, Romans 12, which you know, we have talked about how you know, Romans is very much a book where Paul is preaching the book of Leviticus. He's preaching the, the logic of the book of Leviticus when it comes to holy living and Romans 12, he says, by the mercies of God, which is you know, Leviticus 1 through 16 and Romans 1 through 11. It's like, by the mercies of God, because he's mercifully atoned for your sins and brought you in to this fellowship, you, know, you offer up your body as a living sacrifice, which is your, you know, your reasonable service to him. It's the thing that makes the most sense in life to do. Maybe that wasn't a, a tension in your mind and you didn't uh, have that sort of division. But nonetheless, because I love you, I decided to bring that up. Also in 1 Peter 2.9, it talks about uh, the priesthood again. It ties into this concept of being witnesses to others. And he says, but you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as part of this priesthood is that this, was, this is really the mystery of the church and that the Jewish people were seeing it, they were to be a light to the nations, but they were to be a priesthood to those people on the outside. But the mystery of the church is that God made one new man and he brought the Gentiles into the priesthood. They're like, this is crazy, build a wall. <laughs> and God says, take down the wall, no more dividing walls. And he's making one new man and everybody is being, everybody who's brought to believe in Jesus Christ functions as one new man. Now, picking up chapter 22, verses 17 to 25, we see a holy people offering their best, which is a, a point that has already been made, but I want you to see here in verse 18 how it's showed that, you know, this these the benefits of these promises didn't come only to Israel. Because you remember Abraham, what does his name mean? Was he just the father of the nation? Yeah, he was a father of a multitude. And so reading here, it says, any man of the house of Israel 
or of the sojourners in Israel. Don't you remember, you know, Abraham was also the father of Egypt in a way. Because you remember Hagar, the Egyptian? It's like, why does it keep repeating Hagar, the Egyptian, all the time? It's like, well, his family lineage is wrapped up in the Egyptians also, which uh, his descendancy, by the way, was being a Babylonian in the land of Chaldea specifically. So it's like some Babylonian guy gets saved. He has children with some Egyptian lady. And then Sarah, and he gets remarried later. It's it's a messy family tree, to be sure. But what you see is, you know, God, God is able to straighten out crooked branches into the family tree kingdom that he's building. So any man of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel who bring near his offering, whether it is any of their votive or any of their free will offerings, which they bring near to Yahweh for a burnt offering. You know, remember, these are all fellowship offerings. These are all something that they just, they gave when they felt like it. You know, they were just rejoicing in the Lord and wanted to enjoy fellowship with him. And so they brought these offerings. And you keep hearing the, this word repeated of you know, bringing near to Yahweh and the things that you're not to bring near to him, the things that you are to bring near to him, that it includes the sojourners and the foreigners, which were among them. You remember there was a, a mixed multitude that went out with the sons of Israel for different reasons. And God had mercy on those sojourners and foreigners as well. And they could be brought near to him by unblemished sacrifice as well. Which is good news for us because otherwise none of us in this room right now would be here. So in this teaching model of Israel's worship, you see that the priests are to be without defect. The sacrifices and offerings are to be without defect picturing that God's going to send a high priest who is without defect to make a priesthood that is without defect by a sacrifice that is without defect, which will result in fellowship, which is without defect. And because our God is so gracious to do that, we come with willing hearts that want to bring our best to God. Now, the offerings we bring, obviously, you know, we're not bringing our grain. We do bring you know, our uh, instant pot recipes and bring those and set those up for the fellowship meal. So we still have that same sort of concept. But we don't sacrifice animals. But there's other gifts that we give, which you think about Second Corinthians 8 through 9, in which you know, one church shares with another local church a, a gift of money that was motivated by God's grace. Because it's like, well, what, what is it that, that brought about this, this poor church and their poverty to generously give to this other church? Well, it's like, well they thought about the generosity of God's grace toward them, that you know, G- Jesus, who was rich, he became poor on our behalf. So they thought, you know, if, if that's how Jesus' grace works, how do we show grace like that in this situation where we see this other church that, that has a need? So we're going to give them our best. We're going to give them a brand new washer and dryer. Even though we can't even buy one for our own house, we're going to get them one somehow. <laughs> and you think about, you know, even right now we're right in Philippians 4, 10 through 20, and Paul talks about the fellowship of, you know, giving a gift toward Paul's prison ministry, (laughs) of all things. His gospel prison ministry, which the Lord had given him, and this gift that had traveled to him, he says, you know, this this is an acceptable sacrifice, is what he calls it. Which is, you know, we're, we're involved in that when we, you know, we pull together for our harvest offering, first fruits offering, We don't know what to call it, but we call it by one of those things, and we all know what we're talking about, so we're okay. But we do that, you know, for the sores, you know, 
We, we want to give them a gift to where they don't almost get hooked up to the power grid. We want to give them a gift that hooks them up all the way to the power grid. Or, you know, when we have benefits like that with missionaries that we know about, which, you know, we're often keeping tabs on that and looking for those sort of opportunities where we can totally meet the need of somebody that we could fellowship with in in gospel ministry. You know, we, you know, we also did that with Eddie Rowe and helping him with his tuition while he's at seminary. There was also uh, the, the offering of tools for his vocation, and they made it. I don't know what's going on with his truck situation that got stolen yet, but he got an abundance of tools, and it was super cool to watch. You know, one guy wants to give him tools. It's like, where's Epaphrodites? We need somebody to take these to him. Epaphrodites is linked to some other guy that has, he's just, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to give this guy even more tools. And in the Lord's providence, Eddie gets a whole bunch of tools. And we just worship the Lord and look at his kind providence and him orchestrating all of that. Also, you might recall from Hebrews 13, 15 and 16 is what I'm looking at if you're writing down these cross-references, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. It says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So I see that you know, the sacrifices isn't just uh, toward our wallets, but also the things that we speak and doing good however we can. Sometimes, and the sharing extends to words which build up and things which can help out. You know, sometimes you have the, the supplies that another brother needs or you have the, the skills and you bring that. It's like, you know, what, whatever we have that we can use in the Lord's service, we want to bring our best. And the thing that motivates that again the thing that motivates giving our best to God is because he gave his best to us, his, hon- his, his only son. We see that concept not only in 2 Corinthians 8 through 9, but also Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 begins saying, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. See, so, you know, why do we give ourselves to others? Because Jesus in love gave himself for us. You know, and sometimes it's you know, financial giving, sometimes it's helping somebody, even in things uh, that are difficult and enduring through long trial. Sometimes they're just really simple things. You know, I think about when we uh, moved not that long ago and after everybody had left from helping me move, there was one brother who saw me building my chicken coop with my chickens outside, recognizing I wasn't going to bed until I finished my chicken coop. And he says, brother, I'm going to stay with you as long as I have to until this is totally completed. And it's like, okay, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> but, you know, that was him offering up, you know, a spiritual sacrifice and fellowship in which we shared to one another. And it, and it continues to be an encouragement. You know, a lot of times it's those little mundane sort of things that shape us the most in the Lord. I can think about, you know, in, in my life, there was another example where I was at a, it was basically like a men's breakfast, but it was dinner and it was tacos. And uh, there was one of the brothers who showed up late because his car had broken down a few blocks away. And so he walked the rest of the way. And when we broke to get our tacos, somebody asked him, you know, well, you know, well, why were you late? And he says, well, my car broke down. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with it. I don't know what I'm going to do in this situation. And then I was standing behind 
three men who gathered together and, okay, there were two guys and then one guy walks up to him. He says, all right, guys, do you want to fix this car or do you want to pay to have it fixed? And that was one of those things I thought, this is amazing. Like, I want to grow up to be one of those guys. Because there wasn't, there was no, like, are we going to help him? It's just, we're going to help him. Do you want to help him by fixing it or paying for it? It's just, we're going to do this for him. And that was one of those things that, you know, it shaped me and thinking, you know, I want to be holy to the Lord like that. Yeah, I want to have that kind of commitment to my brothers to be willing to sacrifice my, my time or my skills or my stuff, whatever I can do, so that I can show that my God is a generous God who does stuff like that for people. Lastly here, we're going to look at our holy hope in chapter 22, verses 26 to 33. Leviticus 22 Start in verse 26. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be accepted as a sacrifice of an offering by fire to Yahweh. But whether it is an ox or a sheep, you shall not slaughter both it and its young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to Yahweh, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am Yahweh. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am Yahweh. And you shall not profane my holy name, but I will be treated as holy among the sons of Israel. I am Yahweh who makes you holy, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh. Here we're reminded of God's Sabbath and the repetition and reminder through the seven days. The seven days, again, is a reminder that you need to enter into God's Sabbath rest, but only God can bring you into it, and he will make you holy. He reminds them of eighth-day theology, which was tied to that promise and concept in the Abrahamic covenant. On the eighth day, sons were to be sacrificed, which was looking forward to hearts that would be circumcised and brought into the Abrahamic blessing of being part of that family. It was a reminder of that heart circumcision, which brings somebody into being and entering God's new creation. And notice also that it's, it's sacrifice that makes the worshiper acceptable, which I think is important for our understanding of salvation, that we see that salvation is never about us accepting God. You know, no, no worshiper comes up to God and says, well, God, I just want you to know that I have come here to accept you into my filthy, sinful heart so that you can live there. But what we know is Jesus doesn't want to live in our filthy, sinful heart. He wants to give us a new one and then make his home there. And he graciously does that by making us acceptable to him. So we don't come accepting him, but instead he makes us acceptable. Notice also those words there when he says, I will be treated as holy. You might kind of hear that as like a threat or a warning. But you should read it as a promise. He's saying, this is going to happen. You might think because of the Nadab and Abihu thing and the molten calf thing that it's not actually ever going to happen. But this is a promise that Yahweh will be treated as holy among the sons of Israel. This is how we know that this is a certain promise and not just a possibility. He's not putting it on the people to say that it's up to you for me to be treated as holy. And he says, I make you holy. I will be treated as holy. Well, how do we know that you're going to be treated as holy? He says, I am Yahweh who makes you holy. He's saying, I'm going to will what I command. You know, I'm going to accomplish the thing in you that I'm commanding you to do. Because you remember that one of the things that the law does, its primary purpose is to instruct, and it's pointing out their 
need for God to do all of these things for them. He wasn't putting it forth like, well, here's the way that you can possibly make yourself holy. He's like, here's the thing that shows you it's impossible. But what's impossible with you is only possible with me, and I'm going to do it. But how do we know that God will surely bring about his promises despite our continuing record of failures? Well, God says, remember Egypt. How do we know that God will be treated as holy and make us holy? Well, he says, I am Yahweh who makes you holy, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh. So he points to his past grace toward them to point out his present grace toward them, which points forward to he's going to have future grace for them as well. He's not going to change or waver in who he is or what he's going to do. He will be who he will be. He will not change in his character or his will. He will do it. He says, don't don't forget Egypt. Don't forget that great salvation event, which the equivalent of the death and resurrection that happened in Egypt for the Israelites is paralleled in the cross of Christ and his death and resurrection for the death and resurrection of his people, that they would be made alive in him. And so we remember not only the significance of Egypt, but we remember the significance of the cross. So pulling all of these things together, we see that you know, spiritual leadership within the congregation is something to be taken seriously. God has standards for spiritual leadership which you know, they, they must be met. And you read 1 Timothy 3, it says, you know, he, the, the man who desires to be an elder, he must be above reproach. It doesn't say, you know, he has potential to be above reproach. You know, he, he must be this. And so Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Which again is a, a reminder to, to, be, to be praying for you know, your, the, the spiritual leadership that the Lord has placed here, but also be praying for our, our leadership training. You know, there are other men whom were seeking to be faithful to what Paul said to Timothy and you know, training other faithful men who will teach other faithful men. So I have a multi-generational legacy of men who are above reproach and able to teach and be examples to the whole congregation. Well, you see that this call to holiness is not just for uh, leadership, but it's for the sanctuaries. It's for the people who give gifts and offerings to the Lord. It's for all of us. The leadership's to be examples of those things, but we're all to, to walk in it. We're a priesthood of witnesses who are witnesses through holy living. So if you look up First Peter chapter 2 later, you're going to see that, that that witness is not just something that it's spoken, but it's something that's lived in your conduct before unbelievers as well. And all of this is so that we would enjoy the holy ordered fellowship that that God has designed for us, to enjoy a picture of his, his rest now because we enter into enjoyment and activity in him in this life but we enter into it unhindered, completely apart from sin when that moment of glory happens. And as we look forward to that, it's all of these things that that motivate us wanting to give our best. Because he has made us right with him, we want to walk right with him with the hope that everything will be made right in him. We'll close there in prayer. And if you have any questions, I'll, uh, I'll be around. Our gracious Lord, you alone are holy and have given us a holy calling which puts a certain fear in our hearts, not a fear that immobilizes us, but a fear that comes with a certain hope that you'll finish the work that you've started in us that you're the God who is with us. And though we stumble and fail and 
many ways you don't separate yourself from us, but you have chosen to make us clean and undefiled in Jesus, our high priest who is everything that we need. And we thank you for the reality that our sin no longer separates us from you, but we have an unbroken fellowship in you whereby we can continually come before a throne of grace which never becomes a throne of scolding or a throne of disappointment, but it's one always of love and always of mercy, which includes your kind disciplining hand, which guides us in your way through the trials that you would bring us in life. We pray that within this congregation you would protect us in having a holy leadership, a holy congregation, holy worship and gifts and offerings that we would give to you continually reminding that you brought us up in Christ and what he did on the cross and that we would continually celebrate that in everything that we do, that it would not be some sort of religious devotion that's expressed only in form, but always with willing hearts. We pray that you would continue to have your way in us, to mature us, in you and to grow us in the holiness that you call us to. Thank you that you are at work in us and you will complete that work which you have started in us. Thank you for the certainty of your promises to enter into and enjoy your rest forever. Amen.